welcome to the Gathering Place Church weekly podcast. We hope today's message ignites, equips, and challenges you to live out your Christian faith and to bring healing to a broken world. Amen. Well, God bless you. You can be seated this morning. You're blessed today. You're thankful to be in the house of God. I pray you are. And it's much warmer in here than it is out there. Well, today's a, always an exciting day as we uh, are fellowshipping with some of those that are making that step into calling, gathering place their church home or just want some more information. If that's you today, you're eating lunch with us, just raise your hand real quick. Awesome. Can we put our hands together and welcome them and thank them? It's wonderful. If you didn't get in the memo, I'm sure we have a few extra tacos here. Let us know. Uh, hospitality does not like that I say that because I just changed their number count. But um, we love them, and they are, they are amazing. And, um, you know, are downstairs with babies right now, and they're going to leave early and head over and help serve. So we have such a wonderful hospitality team. Can we thank them as well for all they do behind the scenes? I'm very thankful. Well, as we turn to the scriptures, we've been, you've made it through two teachings on giving, so you came back. That's always a good sign. <laughs> Those can always be touchy subjects, but are, are needed, and it's good to have a, a, a right ordered understanding of everything that the scripture teaches. And, you know, there's so much of a, of a culture in the church that we stay away from uncomfortable subjects because we don't know how it'll make somebody feel or... Maybe they weren't taught that way, or maybe there was abuse in this area of giving, or maybe there was wrong understanding of a relationship, or something that happened where you take your personal experience, and then you judge the scriptures off of that. And if anyone ever tells you that Christianity is a crutch, if anyone ever tells you that Christianity is easy, or it's something you hide behind, then they've never read the scriptures, because it demands everything of your life that we don't uh, change it, it changes us. And it never stops changing us. And so this morning, um, I just wanna look at as we uh, kind of go into a season of, of uh, journeying toward Holy Week, journeying toward um, Good Friday, journeying toward Easter Sunday, and really looking, and not just looking from one dimension or one being a spectator, but we're called to experience what Christ experienced and to walk through at a much deeper level. And I think so many of these things just get skimmed over um, uh, and you don't experience the fullness of it. Because as you walk with the scripture, uh, as we talk, you not only read it, but it reads you. And when you allow and sit at a place of where it reads you, that's the place of where transformation takes place. Because the thing I love, and even when you build a secret place, and we've talked of this extensively, when you build a secret place, if you have a title attached to your name, a CEO, a pastor, um, a small business person, a teacher, uh, a leader, whatever that is, guess what, and we should be thankful for this, is Jesus doesn't refer to you as your title. You're just a son and you're a daughter. And this is such a, a place of healing, a place of, of, of where humility is birthed, where you can leave all of the expectations that people have of you or the demand that your job or your life plays on you, and you can just sit with the Lord and you can receive 
and become like him. And uh, this is such a wonderful place to be. And if you don't have that place established in your walk with him, you're missing so much of where transformation takes place. You know, you're gonna, get, you're gonna hear something and something's gonna prick you, something's gonna touch you in the gathering of the body like we're here right now. Um, but so much more when you can take it and cultivate it as we've talked of. Let the scriptures get deep within you then when pain, peril, or problem touches you, and it will, C.S. Lewis said you're either going into the storm, you're in the middle of the storm, or you're coming out of the storm, repeat. So you gotta be ready in and out of season, and scripture teaches us this. We live in a world today that is not prepared for anything. In our men's group, we looked at spiritual and physical preparation on Thursday, and all the statistics would show that this, uh, this generation coming up um, is the uh, least most prepared generation for anything. A crisis financially, a crisis physically, you name it, there is, just isn't much preparation. And as Christians, we wanna be the prepared ones. We wanna be the ones to bring hope, help, and healing uh, in not just our own lives, but in our families and those around us. Uh, what we're gonna look at today is we're going to look at and starting a new series called The King of Glory. Um, we're gonna look at um, specific gospel passages that are gonna prepare you um, as we journey toward Easter, that these would be passion narratives. Everything from the washing of Jesus' feet, cleansing the temple of what we're looking at today. Um, you see the last words of Christ. You see the thief on the cross. Uh, we're gonna be looking at a lot of these texts um, that have such um, um, weightiness and they're heavy and you can chew on them and they can feed you well. If you've ever walked away from a, a um, $100 filet mignon, right, um, Jeff Ruby's, the Joe Burrow, with whatever sauce they put on it that's from New Orleans. I forget the name of it. It's like 22 bucks if you get the sauce. We did not get the sauce when we went for an anniversary. Um, but what you gotta understand is we split the steak, we do. That's always the secret if, you, if managing your money, here you go, is you can eat the nice meal but just split it and it cuts the cost in half, we know this. But what I want to look at today is, as we cleanse the temple, I mean, if you got the email, there's so much of what you see happening in the church um, that if Jesus were to walk into it, so much of it would be the response of what you see and when he walked into the temple. And understand in this gospel text of Jesus cleansing the temple is this was not a, a emotional thing where he just saw something and then reacted. Jesus never reacted. It was very thought through. It was very purposeful. It was always very prophetic. And the things that he did, especially in cleansing the temple, it was leading to the hour of his death and of his resurrection. So there's great, deep, a treasury trove of, of meaning um, of what we see through this. And things that you see uh, on the world's largest stage, uh, like... I had sent out in the email of the He Gets Us campaign. Anybody see those commercials and maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't understand it, uh, maybe you thought it was true, you just, that's great, He Gets Us. 
and you walked away from it. But when you see Christianity explained on the world's largest stage, and that's what our faith is portrayed as, um, so much is missing, and so much is misguided, so much is manipulated, and if we're not careful, um, this is the direction that Christianity is heading. It is soft, it is weak, and it is woke. It's very progressive. And if you say anything opposite of that, then as they put in the ads, if you, if you hold to what the scriptures teach, then you are the one that is preaching hate. You are the one that believes in a hateful Jesus because you're not going around washing everybody's feet all the time. And so the whole text, and we'll, we'll look at this, there's a specific Sunday, we're going to look at the washing of Jesus's, where Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and we're going to rein it back in into right context of what this means and how the He Gets Us campaign portrayed it is farthest from the truth. Um, so you've got to be careful, and you, you can't believe the lies. This is what's so important, is you can't believe the distortion and the deception that is coming quickly down the pipeline. And it isn't just for you to think about it, it is being spoon-fed, if not shovel-fed, into the church. Not only this, we've, we got texts, I'm sure you saw it, or if you look at anything closely in regards just to the, the bigger church of what's happening, the body of Christ, um, we got several texts of saying, what's going on in Cincinnati? And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, did you see some of these clips from you know, our, our community's largest church, Crossroads? And maybe you caught some of their footage. Anybody see some of the footage, if you know what I'm talking about, their football services? And so much of what happened there is under the guise of we want to bring everybody in. We want to just get people through the door. And they did um, things, and, and we'll show a little clip here. Um, TJ, just mute the volume for a second. Actually, you can keep the volume up. But I just want you to see that this is, this is the place when you have 34,000 members in your church, you're the fastest growing church in America in 2017, that this is the expectation that people have of church. And this is to the place of where what you'll see here um, uh, is the senior pastor and another pastor on staff, they're kicking a Bible across the stage. And so there's uh, a moment where they open their service and they do this every year and it's caught national attention of everyone questioning what is going on. Is does, does the church really slid into a place where we have to punt a Bible across the stage in order to be relevant and to order to bring people into the church. So turn it up a little bit, you'll see him do it here. If you can bear it. So oh my goodness! So there's, there's stuff like this when you see, um, you get what they're trying to do, but how many of you would say you went too far? You went too far. I mean, last week we were jokingly, but somewhat seriously talking. Back in the day, you wouldn't put your Bible on the ground. And then we see this, and it's like, okay. Um, but when you see the direction the church is headed and where it's at, uh, it's such a slippery slope. And this was just the icing on the cake. I mean, there was, they were singing um, songs of 
I've got friends in low places. They were handing out Crossroads marketed beer. They have their own light beer that they'll actually hand out. Um, Again, this is the church. Uh, There was a wrecking ball that came down for the Miley Cyrus video, and there was people swinging on a wrecking ball in the middle of the service. And again, I, I don't say this in a way to cast shade in one point, but I say this to say is this is where the church is at. And as one commentator said, unless you actually get up and leave these services, they never actually get the message that it's okay. They'll just keep doing it. Because it brings 34,000 people across X amount of campuses through the doors of the church. And I say all this to say is because this is the standard of where they put themselves in a place to teach pastors and to teach churches of this is what you do to grow. This is what you do to get people in your church. And as we are growing, as we're building, that's not the way we're going. Um, And so you've got to understand that not every church is created equal from what they believe to how they minister through what, what methods. And if you can just pray for Crossroads, pray for their, their pastor, pray for those that are involved. Um, because the shaking that's coming into the church, this stuff just, it, it doesn't go anymore. And you've got to understand as well, is there is a generation that's coming up who's kind of grown up in this. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of it of where you did everything to try to reach people. And there's just a, it's, it's cringy. And it's just, that's not the way forward. We've seen where that's got us, and it's borderline heretical, it's borderline sacrilegious, and, um, you know, even most Protestants, you don't touch the Bible. Like, that's, this is, the the Bible and the cross is what we have, and you don't desecrate it. It's just plain common sense. Um, So we're going to look at this He Gets Us ad, and TJ, you can actually bring the volume down on this one. I want to share some thoughts, and then we're going to get into the text today and look at a biblical response. So you'll see some of these images. If you bring the lights down, you're going to see very quickly they made Jesus into this political figure that he goes into all of the marginalized communities, those that are victimized in America, and it's just the people of power are bending low and washing the feet um, from an abortion clinic, to an alcoholic mother. Um, You see the oil rigs. Uh, You see all of these places of contention in our country that the goal is of what Jesus would do is to wash feet. Um, So you see all of these uh, places of odds that this is how we come together. I want you to pause here. And this is if you watch this. This is what really got you because it ended of where um, it had what looks like a Catholic priest uh, bending and washing the feet of a transgender. Take your roller skates off, uh, let me wash your feet. And then it it goes into where it says, Jesus didn't preach hate. Uh, And the campaign ends. So if you saw this in one just quick swipe, it's a minute commercial, you're like, okay, that's, that's loving. Right, Jesus cares, Jesus washes feet, Jesus didn't preach hate. Um, But what you've gotta understand when you go to the scriptures, you gotta understand there's a lot of money put into a campaign like this 
to manipulate you to see something that's not there or to see something that is there. And this is the, the goal of many marketing campaigns is they put the best minds together and they say, how can we manipulate people to feel a certain way? And most people, if you go on platforms or chats or uh, Twitter, X, whatever, you would see that most Christians didn't receive this well, which was a good sign, um, but they saw it as, as questioning of what, what is going on here. And is this really what Jesus would do in the context of how he would do it? One comment I'll make about when Jesus washed feet, if you read in, in John 13, um, the heartbeat of Jesus in the realm of washing feet was he didn't go around and have this big sit in, in the middle of, of a busy place and bring people in and say, let me wash your feet. Just everyone come through, wash your feet. Whatever you've done, whoever you are, just sit down, let me wash your feet. This was done in a very particular way um, around the disciples. Right? This was in a, a closed room event uh, leading to his death. Those that were following Jesus, yes, Judas was in the room, um, but what we've got to understand is that in the context of what Jesus was doing it, it was not in, I get you, let me wash your feet and go about your life. And so what we've got to realize is that this soft, kind of weak, sissified Jesus that's being portrayed is that he never says hard things, he never draws lines, he never requires anything of you. Um, let's just start with the scripture, right? If you want to follow me, you must first deny yourself, you gotta pick up your cross, and you've gotta follow me. So that, this, the, the, what we've gotta see is that there's this whole campaign around the person of Jesus, is the them of the world wants to change him. He wants to change him to be like them. Because the world does not like, uh, borderline hates the Jesus of the scriptures, would we agree? They don't like him, I mean, this is what we see even in the day and time of Jesus, the religious leaders couldn't stand him, and there were so many who didn't get him who wouldn't follow him. And Jesus was known for saying crowd-thinning statements. This is what he did. You even see, and I think we have it back there, John 6, 65 through 66, is when Jesus was talking about his body and his blood, um, and the misguided misconception of even the people that followed Jesus was that you're going to be this political leader, you're going to free us from Roman rule, and Jesus always pushed that off because that's not who he was. They were more interested in one case of physical bread when he was bringing spiritual bread. Many people, when they don't get Jesus, is they think he's got something in his hand to give us when he's saying, I have something so much deeper to give you but it's not gonna touch your hand. It's gonna touch your heart. And so look what Jesus says. This was a crowd-thinning statement. This was not to a religious leader. This wasn't to a Pharisee. This wasn't to a chief priest. This was just to um, common people, people that would follow him in a crowd. He said, therefore I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. And so after he teaches on communion, he says, from that time many of his disciples went back they walked with him no more. So those closest to him, you see in places of scripture walked away because it was, a lot of times Jesus was too much for people. And here's what we've got to understand about the he gets us thing, where they get it wrong, is Jesus invites everyone to the table. Everyone can sit at the table. The gospel is to go out to everyone, Jew, Gentile, 
everyone. But here's the difference, and here's the, where Jesus brings the sword, is not everybody stays at the table. So this is, we've, we've tried to mass market Jesus to try to get everyone, but not understand that when they come to the table, this is the place now you've got to be taught, you've got to be st- discipled, and change has to come your way. Transformation, freedom, a lifestyle, all the lifestyles we see pictured, um, Jesus has something to say about all of it. And what we've got to understand is, and this is what tires me, is the narrative is being so pushed that just because you disagree with someone's sin, it's now labeled as hate. If you say anything about sin, oh, you're talking about hate, you're being hateful, you're not affirming my lifestyle, now I'm putting you in the category of you're that hateful preacher, you're that hateful in law, you're that hateful parent, you're that hateful brother. And so we live in a world today that is so sensitive that anytime you say something contrary to what I believe, it's seen as hateful. So we've got to understand this, and what we're going to see today is Jesus goes into his church. Um, what we see in the corner, it says he stands in the corner of the temple before he goes in, and he begins to braid a whip. Now this teaches us that uh, again, it was not this emotional reaction that Jesus had. But in uh, Jesus being a teacher, he being a rabbi, he would visit the temple at least three times a year for feast and for celebration. And so in him visiting it, he would see a lot of these same practices that would happen time and time again. But it was not his time to come forth. And again, don't you, aren't you thankful that Jesus knew when his time was and when to come forth? And so Jesus sees the landscape of the American church. And what we've got to understand of what Jesus is about to confront in the temple, which should be the most sacred place and was, um, he, it was time to deal with the corruption that was taking place. And you see, we've got to internalize this too, is we just want Jesus to go get the bad guys um, or go deal with the bad thing but we've always got to internalize it and say, Jesus needs to deal with some stuff in here, right? That we've always got to look inwardly and let Jesus deal with the dark places of our life, the places of unrepentive sin, the places that we hide or we stay in the shadows with, the anger, the hurt, the bitterness, you name it, is we've got to let Jesus see these places and deal with the corruption of our lives, the corruption that's within our heart. This is why this faith walk um, Jesus leaves no stone unturned because he loves us and he wants every part of our life to be healed. And my heart and my goal as a church is, can we be discontent until we're healed in the most fullest possible way? Can that be our pursuit of devotion to Christ? We see Paul talk about this um, in Second uh, Corinthians real quick of, woe to you who preach a false Jesus. What are you who preach the wrong Jesus? 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. And then Paul has concern for their faithfulness and concern that they're not going to be deceived by a strand of doctrine that comes in that veers them off course. So the same things that the church struggled with then, aren't you thankful that we have a blueprint and we have wisdom so that we don't fall deceived to the same things today? says this, it says, oh, that you would bear with me 
in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. So we see the love of our God toward his people, toward his church. There is a jealous love, a love that is loyal and faithful, like Bree said, that has fidelity toward us, and he first loved us, so in response, we want to love him back with the same kind of love. For I have betrothed you to one husband, given the, the bridal language here, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In other words, that you be a pure and spotless bride. This was Paul's goal, that the church be walking in purity and holiness, and that we be presented, because in, in the, when the day comes, we want to be presented to him pure and spotless. But this was Paul's concern, this was his fear. He says, but I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. See, the enemy is after the corruption of your mindset. This is why we have to guard our mind. This is why the battlefield is in the mind. This is why when we get in the scriptures, it teaches us how to think and how to think correctly, how to think uh, in a way that is, is pleasing. Because sin just doesn't start with the hand, it starts with the head. It flows to the heart and comes through the hands. So if you stop the thought here, if you stop the cycle here, then this is where you see transformation to the choices you make, the decisions you make. And so Paul is a good pastor is here saying, I'm fearful that some of you are just gonna be drawn into these, these versions of Jesus. And he goes on to say, um, the simplicity that is Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So he's saying there's gonna be some of you that are gonna tolerate this, that you're gonna put up with it. But if you can hear the, the pastoral heart of Paul is... Be as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. This is the way of Jesus. That we're gentle in our discernment. We're not the mean, Bible-bashing heresy hunters, but we understand that just as Paul in Acts went to the Areopagus, went to preach the gospel, he saw that there was a forgotten God, and he used that forgotten God to let me teach you this forgotten God is Jesus. He didn't go in and say, okay, what's their pagan traditions and how can I make this forgotten God sound like their type of Jesus or their type of God that they can understand? No, he went in and preached Christ and him crucified. And so what we've got to understand is it's very new agey to try to figure out what someone believes and where they're at and make Jesus kind of morph and massaged and molded into what they think or make it palatable to how they can intake it. Versus the gospel is powerful, preach the truth, live the truth, let someone see something different, and it will plant a seed so powerful, it will cause a shaking and a cutting so powerful uh, that it will do the job. Let Jesus do the convicting. Let Jesus begin to wrestle with them. We just can't compromise the message and process. Amen? Amen? Do you agree with that? And so when you have these mass marketing campaigns to try to give us a Jesus that fits more of the culture's narrative and then tries to put the church at a place, you and I at a place of we just don't get it. 
we're just kind of hateful, we're old, it's, it's antiquated, it's too ancient, it doesn't really fit, but this is the kind of Jesus that everybody wants, so this is what we're going to give them. And this is not the case. So, as we see in um, John chapter 8, Nadia, if you bring this up, you're going to see Jesus cleansing the temple. And this is a glorious gospel passage, and I believe one that is so needed and should be revisited or visited frequently in our lives. There's always some, because sin, it, it comes to bring a decay. Sin just doesn't quickly snatch and rob something. It plants a virus, it plants a poison, and it begins to do a slow decay. The enemy doesn't take how long it takes to decay your marriage as long as he has access, and that decay is a slow drip. What you gotta understand is that you've gotta be aware of the decay that's taking place and get, don't even give the enemy a foothold as we see. So the scripture says this in John um, 8. And uh, Nadia, if you would actually go, sorry, to John chapter 2, verse 13. John 2, verse 13. Uh, there's a great message I preached last year on this called Wine and whip. Jesus does the first miracle at the wedding of Cana, precedes this, and then Jesus goes into the temple. So you can go, if you want to connect those two stories, you just search wine and whip on the church YouTube channel, you'll find that. And um, start your morning coffee off with the message, it'll, it'll bless you, I promise. But John chapter 2, it says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, says he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Other translations say, do not make my father's house a den of thieves or a den of robbers. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, wait, Jesus actually loves the house of God here. They remember what was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up, shall consume me, other translations say. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And understand this, anytime Jesus disturbed their corruption. Anytime Jesus disturbed their flow of income, the temple was the most prosperous place in the city. Uh, in the Maccabean era, you would even see there was so much wealth and prosperity, they actually stopped counting the offering and the tithe that came in because it was so vast and they couldn't even count it. Could you imagine that? And so there was so much wealth in the, in the temple. Understand when Jesus steps into this, he's touching decades and decades and generations of corruption, of how money is handled, um, of how sacrifices are handled. And so as Jesus is stepping on so many of these, these man-made traditions that have, have corrupted, understand that he's not touching the sacredness of what the temple should be or that the stuff of, of worship, the stuff of praise, the stuff of, of sacrifices, but he's touching the corruption of it. And see, many people think, oh, we can be more free 
if we just sit in a house church because it's not in a physical gathering, every institution is so corrupted that we can just be free if we just kind of do it our way and do our own, own thing, right? I mean, there's many people you just, they'll never step foot into a church because they don't trust anyone and they have issues with authority. And I understand if there's been hurt and pain there, but Jesus, what he, you're, gonna, you're about to see here is every time Jesus stepped on something that was corrupted, people would always say, what authority do you have to come in here and do this? Jesus' authority was constantly challenged, but the way that he handled when his authority was challenged, he understood that if he gave them what they even wanted to hear, it would never be good enough. Still would never be good enough because they wanted to always catch Jesus in a trap. Understand as we head toward the cross in the passion narrative is they were always looking to catch Jesus in a trap. If we can just get him to say, that he's about to overthrow Rome, if we can get him to go against this Jewish tradition, then the crowds will leave. And understand that Jesus had massive crowds that followed him. I mean, this was like if you ever watch the Masters coming up when Tiger Woods would play, right? You have hundreds if not thousands of people following Tiger Woods wherever he goes to watch and get a glimpse of, you know, golf greatness, right? So Jesus, wherever he would go, whenever he would teach, would always have this following around him. And so the Pharisees didn't know what to do with it because if they teach one thing about Jesus or tick somebody off and, and confront him too much, the crowd would get him. The crowd would go after the Pharisees. But then at the same time, they could not get Jesus to say what they wanted to say because he would always turn the tables back on them through a riddle uh, through uh, a Jesus-style question and get them to see the own corruption of their heart. So as, as you get into the Gospels this week, um, around the Jesus of him cleansing the temple, you'll see things of the vine dresser, the cursing of the fig tree, and it's all to show the fruitlessness of the heart of the Pharisee or of the chief priest. That Jesus cares about fruit, and when you're claiming one thing, but there's no fruit to back it up, yes. you better be careful. Yes. Jesus doesn't play with mere talk, but he cares about the fruit that comes forth out of your life. So as Jesus steps on all of their merchandise, and understand the level of corruption, is when they would travel from different countries, they would have different monies, and just like today, you needed it to be exchanged. So... Um, history would show around this is that when you would come in with a, a certain amount of silver, they would have imbalanced scales to say, well, you actually have a less amount of silver, so they would cheat you of the money. The chief priests in the temple would get tons of kickbacks, even to the place of the animal sacrifices that were brought in when they were skinned, and you had the skins of these animal sacrifices, uh, they would be sold as coats and and. All, all, the, all the things. Um, and uh, many a times the proceeds that were left when the temple sold it would go to the priest, just the common priest who would perform the sacrifices, who would do, literally show up at home after work with blood all over them because they were killing animals all day for sacrifice. But the chief priests who would sit at their ivory towers would get all of the kickbacks, would actually, I mean, you can go and read in the historical accounts they would go in and actually take these, um, these coats and these proceeds that would go to the priest and, and stack them away for them, themselves. So there was greed at the very top. 
And so as Jesus goes into this and sees all of this greed, something had to be done about it. Something had to be done. And so Jesus acts, and he drives their animals out. And you would understand that even the whip that was driving them out, the whip was not hitting the people. It was hitting their oxen. Because wherever your treasure is, there your heart goes. So you better believe if their heart was connected to that ox that Jesus is whipping, not the person whipping the ox, as their treasure goes, there they go running after it to show the condition of their heart. And so Jesus is dealing at the place of of corruption on every level because Jesus doesn't tolerate corruption, especially when it comes to his house. And this just puts the fear of God in me because there's so much corruption that's happening of when is Jesus gonna act and when is the shaking, I mean, shaking is happening. But this is where we just can't play church. We just can't play with our faith and think a little bit of this, a little bit of that, one foot in, one foot out. And Jesus just winks at it and comes and washes our feet. I get you, just keep doing what you're doing. But when Jesus calls us close, he just doesn't get us, but he saves us. He restores us, he redeems us, he changes us, he heals us. He walks with us. He just doesn't say, let me, I mean, they reference John 8 in, on their website, all the things you look into it. Um, even the woman caught in the act of adultery, he bends down low and he meets the woman's need. He doesn't judge her in her sin. He loves her right where she's at. But then as she has experienced such great grace and mercy, he then looks deep into the recesses of her eyes, piercing her soul, You don't have to sin anymore. Go and sin no more. It's not this angry Jesus, go and sin no more. It's just you've now tasted of freedom. You don't have to live like this anymore. This doesn't have to be your supply. This doesn't have to be the touch of all these men that you think you need to satisfy you. Isn't the touch you need. You need my touch. So Jesus, they question his authority. He said... They said, what sign do you show us and you do these things? Verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they take this very literal. You're gonna come destroy the physical temple. But what he's saying is, you're about to destroy the temple, my body. And on three days, I'm going to raise it up. Because Jesus is the temple. And he's, he's taking what physical worship they understand He's teaching them that now you're gonna worship in spirit, spirit and truth, the day is coming. And worship will not be a place, but it will be a person, it will be a body. And it's all centered and focused around the person of Christ. Verse 20, the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Again, they don't get it. But he was speaking of the temple of his body, he explains. Verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them. So don't you love, because Jesus taught them the scriptures, when he would give these riddles to the Pharisee, the religious leaders who should get it, but they couldn't see it because they didn't have the right lens, they didn't understand. But the disciples would hear this and be like, oh, I remember in a garden several years ago when we were walking with Jesus, he taught us about this. And so they would see prophecy play out in real time And you gotta know they're just sitting back in amazement and marveling of what Jesus is doing. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. They believed the scripture and the word 
which Jesus had said. Again, this is why it is important. Even the disciples here, they could see it because they knew the Jesus of the scripture. If you do not cultivate a love for the scripture, you will believe the mass marketing campaigns of who Jesus is and not the Jesus of the scripture. Because we don't know a Jesus outside of the scripture. And any, any pastor, any church that tries to massage, tries to mold, tries to make it more palatable, I get the sentiment. You gotta know your audience. Everyone, um, but where I go back to is, can't we just trust the Holy Spirit? That he can, is the greatest teacher. And when Jesus is presented, he can take and teach and touch every heart better than any type of creativity or word that I can give. Again, the sign of a healthy, thriving, growing church is not a crowd. And I think we've gotten so far from this. Rosie, this scripture's for you, actually. <laughs> I, I'm dead serious, right here. Matthew, Matthew 21, 17, she can hear this. This is for her. Look at this. It said, and Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? So going on, uh, we're gonna flip over to Matthew's account. It explains it. Hear this, out of the mouth of babes, all right? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. We love you, Rosie. You have perfected praise. So what you're hearing from Rosie is perfected praise as she's going out. I love it. She, she knew it was coming and had to keep me moving. So it said, then he left them and went out of the city of Bethany and he lodged there. Don't you love it that Bethany is always the place Jesus reclined? Jesus' friends, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, those were his family and his spiritual family in Bethany. And anytime you see Jesus go through a tough account, being challenged, he would retreat into his inner circle and he would go recline. He would get filled up, have fellowship. Jesus was, you gotta remember, he had a human element and he just didn't process everything really quick and just spit out wisdom all the time. He got tired, he needed to eat, he needed friendship, he needed fellowship. He gets it, uh, and we see it in, in little, little situations here. All right, so he then goes into the fig tree withered, and we'll close with this. It says, now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Again, we see a picture of his humanity, Jesus had to eat. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. So he curses the fig tree. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Some of the most challenging, if you follow a progressive Jesus or think of him in that light, cleansing the temple and the cursing of a fig tree bother you. Uh, Because these aren't just kind Jesus holding a baby lamb walking everywhere type Jesus is, right? But Jesus curses a fig tree here and this is all in the context of Jesus cleansing the temple because he goes on to teach. The next morning he does this. And what he's, what he's showing is um, the corruption of the heart, the unfruitfulness of the Pharisee. He's saying that is a cursed part of your life. That is a corrupted part of your life. And in the cursing of the fig tree, it's showing a life that does not bear fruit is a life he does not recognize. You can't be filled with the very spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and never bear fruit. 
fruit should be flowing out of his people. But when corruption gets it, it makes it rotten. So what comes out of our life is rotten fruit. And you ever seen rotten fruit? Ruins the batch. It's not edible. Or you can eat it, but you're going to spit it out. My kids spit out good fruit anyways. We're working on that. (laughs) So then Jesus gives a lesson. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled. So once again, they see Jesus cursing this fig tree. And they're just like, who is this Jesus? He just goes by cursing a fig tree. So they marveled again. How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered, understand this. When you have bitterness, corruption, sin that you are not tending to in the garden of your heart, it will wither you away quickly. This is why Jesus deals urgently. Again, he's heading to his passion. So the the last words of his life, they're weighty. There's a punch to it. And so many times we pacify these parts of our life. We just get by, we, we'll just rub some oil over it, we'll just, you know, we'll veg out on Netflix, we'll do whatever it takes to just numb that part of our life, but not understanding it's decaying and it's withering us to, to there's gonna be a point where there's no good fruit coming out of your life because sins like cancer, it will grow. You've gotta deal with it. So in verse 23, again, you see his authority question. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And here's where you see the audacity of the Pharisee again. He's teaching just like this. Imagine the Pharisee in their fine robes, their big hats, all of their religiosity coming in and while Jesus is speaking and speaking over him. This is just what little regard that they had for this lowly Jesus who was way out of line. So he's teaching in the temple and he was confronted when he was teaching and they said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, again, this is just an amazing response. I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And it says they go over and they start reasoning, right? They start just talking, how, what's gonna be our big response here? And they don't, they, you don't find anything. I'm just telling you, the wisdom of God is, is amazing. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you believe him? But if we say from men, we're gonna fear the multitude that's gonna come after us. For all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. And I mean, what a, they should know everything, right? And they don't know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus always put them into the corner. And in other places of scripture, he says, your sign, your sign to those who are unbelieving will be my death, my burial, my resurrection. That's the sign that's coming for you. So Jesus would always catch the trap they were giving him and put them right in it. Matthew 21, 43, 
says this too. It says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Does Jesus care about fruit? Yes. Should we be bearing fruit? You know, you look at it in other places, you can read the account as we prepare to take communion and as we prepare to give. If you read the account of where another trap they set for Jesus, they started to catch on, and this is, would be the account of the, um, the taxes, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto to God what is God's. So this would be in this passion narrative where you hear that this text come from. Well, the Pharisees started to see is we cannot get Jesus in a trap. So guess what? They send their interns. They send some of the younger priests, the, the scriptures show this as, as you read it. They were tired of getting stumped, so we're just gonna send some of the interns who were kind of full of life. You know, they're younger in the faith, and we're gonna see if we can get Jesus' guard down. So we're just gonna kind of go in through the back door, kind of go in through a Trojan horse and see if we can't manipulate Jesus and to let his guard down and maybe he'll talk to us a little bit. So I want you to see the place of the trap that they kept trying to angle and corner Jesus in. And what I want you to see through this is we all have a part of this in us. We try to angle and corner Jesus in a way where we get the response we want, where we get the blessing that we are entitled to. But Jesus changes for no one. Again, we have to change. He's got to open our eyes. He has to open our heart. So they go to him and they just start saying, you're such a great teacher. And they pull money out and they say, you know, it has Caesar's face on the coin. And, you know, then Jesus sees that they're setting him up again. And he actually confronts them calls them wicked, and again, shows them, you're not gonna manipulate me. And he sees what they're doing. It says the Pharisees are standing in the background watching. And what you've gotta understand, the enemy is ruthless coming after the authority we have in Christ. The enemy is ruthless to get your confidence. The enemy is ruthless to get you to doubt, to walk in fear, doubt, unbelief. But understand this is not your portion. And understand that Jesus never backed down. Jesus never backed down. And many of us, when we are confronted with the enemy, or maybe we see the reality of our sin, we want to sit and cry and run and, and freak out. But this is where we've got to understand that there is, there is a walk that comes with Christ. Where freedom is our portion. We don't have to manipulate him. We don't have to try to get him to tell us what we want to hear. But we want to sit underneath Jesus and sit in the background of when we see our sin confronted, just as the disciples did. Wait, I, I know where that's in the scripture. Jesus said this was going to happen. That zeal for his house would consume him. And what, what hurts my heart is zeal for the house of God has just kind of left the church. It's just left. And this is just a personal conviction of mine is I've been a church kid my whole life. I'm, I'm a PK, right? Um, actually, I'm a GK, a grandma pastor kid. We don't have a category for that. But, um, you know, growing up in the things of God, 
um, and just seeing the place the church has played in my life. Um, you know, I was looking over at my mom and just seeing her lift her hands in worship that all these years, they've been in it much longer than me, but there is still burning love for Jesus in my parents' heart. And when you lead the church, you deal with the good, yes, but you deal with the ugly. And if you're not careful what Jesus walked through, that can cause a place of bitterness in your life. As a pastor, when you deal with all full spectrum of the circle, if you're not careful, it can make you say, I have no hope in people. But Jesus had a place that he could so far supersede because his heart burned for his father. He was about his father's business. And he didn't let the folly of people, because at the end of the day, he loved the Pharisee just as much as he loved Judas. And if they could listen like Nicodemus that did, their lives can change, Pharisees' lives changed, right? And so what we have to see here, through the cleansing of the temple, and if you stand with me and you take, go and take your communion, you can prepare it. I want you just to posture yourself. I want you just to reflect to the place of, is Jesus just your get out of jail free card? Or is he your friend? Is he your Lord? Is there fidelity? Is there faithfulness in your walk with him? Is there fruit? And my heart and my prayer is, is that we never live a life like the Pharisee did say. If we only would have known, we would have never crucified the King of glory. God in the flesh stood right in front of them and they couldn't see it. Many times Jesus stands right in front of us and we don't see him. We're too busy. We're looking for the wrong Jesus. We're looking for the Jesus that'll just tell me it's okay and I can go on. I don't gotta change. As Pastor Joyce always said, actually what Chester told her, if you, if you stop telling people to change, you might actually grow the church. So there's always this There's always this point of, of separation. Again, Jesus comes to bring a sword in many areas of our life because he wants loyalty, but not in a place of you have to. It's a place of you get to because when we, when we cross the barriers and the boundaries he puts in, it's not a gotcha or it's not I put those there because I, I, I don't want you to have the best or your freedom or whatever. He puts these things in place because when you cross them, it breaks communion. It brings pain and hurt in your life. And he's saying, if you build your life upon the love of the word of God, you'll build a life of one that is being transformed daily into the image of Christ. You see, in the washing of the feet, and then we'll take communion. When Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, Peter said, well, then wash my head, wash 
you know, my body, everything needs to be washed, just not my feet. But what Jesus was teaching them is your feet, again, these are the disciples. They believe. They're followers of Christ. Um, he's teaching them something after their baptism. He's saying your feet are going to go out and touch cursed ground. Your feet are going to go into environments, into places that do not serve me. Your feet are going to get wearied and worn and tired when you stand and when you cling to the cross. And there's going to have to be a renewal, a washing every day, a walking out of repentance because you're going to fall short. But when you come to me, it's not going to be a rejection when you're following me. It's going to be sit and be washed and let forgiveness run freely through your life. And some of us, we've neglected the part of letting him wash our feet every day. We think it's just I check in when, I, when they get really dirty. But he cares about every little thing and wants relationship with you and wants a place of secrecy, of fidelity, a place of closeness that only comes through an everyday walk with him. We can't give each other's history to each other. We can't give, I can't give you everything I have with him. Many of it is you've got to go get it yourself. And Jesus says it's not hard. It's simple. Paul says this too. Don't stray so far from the simplicity of Christ and go after all of these social justice, activist, Jesus stuff. But get back to the scriptures of what it teaches. Follow that, Jesus. And he'll be this close. And so as we just take a moment, if you bow your head, if you can just be real with Jesus, let him wash you with his blood because Jesus washes with something much powerful than water. The very blood that dripped from his brow. The very blood that was shed from his pierced side. That's the blood he washes us with. And Jesus, we don't want to live a life that is always looking for the get out, for the escape, we're always justifying. That's immature. It's silly and it's foolish. Father, we thank, that, we thank you that you have paid a great price. And when someone gives us a gift of great value and of great price, we protect it, we care for it, we nourish it. We don't treat it flippantly. Because this train of thought gets you to a place where you regard nothing, nothing sacred. And we just walk around like we got it all figured out and our wisdom is better than his. Well, Jesus puts the, the loftiest of wisdom in its place. And Father, I pray out of your love, put us in our place where we think we know better. We think we have it figured out. Father, any place of corruption within us, would you touch and cleanse right now? You just whisper that to him, say, wherever the corruption, would you correct it? Would you cleanse it? Would you wash it? You're not just washing it with mere water, but you turn water into wine. You take the mess and the junk of our life and use it for your glory. So Lord, we thank you that transformation 
a life of fruitfulness. We walk in this and we settle for nothing less. We lift the body of Christ, we break it. It says it was broken for us. We take of his body in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for your covenant. Thank you that this is our vision. This is the medicine our soul needs. Our soul does not need a pat on the back and a wink. It needs a touch of the power of the Holy Spirit that permeates every part of who we are and just doesn't make us better, but actually makes us new because we must be born again. We must attain this new life. And then as an infant must grow, so we must grow in this faith. We must grow in this walk all the days of our life. Let us not neglect our growth, stunt our growth, be rebellious at every wake and turn because something may be required of us. Lord, touch our mindset, touch our heart, touch our hands. We repent of sin. We thank you that freedom would reign in this place as we partake of your blood. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We pray it encouraged, uplifted, and challenged you to become more like Christ. We would love to hear from you. You can email your prayer request to prayer at gpcky.com. Loving our podcast? Take a moment and like and subscribe on our YouTube channel to stay up to date with all of our new content. Thanks for listening.